Let's open our Bibles to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 8. Daniel, Hosea, Amos. So the focus of the meeting, uh, the central theme up to this point, really, has been about us serving, uh, being mindful about our opportunities and obligations to be a servant, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And, of course, that's all tied into the fact that one day we will be judged for those works at that judgment seat of Christ. Um, now, I want to shift gears a little bit, and it's going to be more of a Bible study than anything. And I, I bet for a lot of you this is going to maybe just be a, a mild refresher about the importance of these words, okay? Um, and I, like I say, I don't know where all of you are. I know that your pastor and I went to the same school, so if you've been in this church for any length of time, uh, most of everything I'm going to cover here tonight will just be a refresher, but it's like prayer. Sometimes it's good to re be reminded and have yourself refreshed uh, about the power of this book that we have. Amen. And, and how effective it can be. And, and just how, because of that, how important it is. And not to neglect it. Uh, boy, I, I want to get a copy of that book. I want afterwards get the title and so forth. Sure. That sounds like a great little book. And I'll size it. You know, I say most books, the first time an author writes a book, it's small like that. And the next time he writes one, it's really thick. And he just really needed to be that thick, maybe, to get the points across. But anyway, Amos chapter 8, when we get started here in the Potter's Wheel. Not going to do a lot with play tonight. It's going to be something very interesting, I hope, for y'all. Amos 8, verse 11. The Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, um, interesting. I think about the fact that uh, I believe that's applicable today. I believe that refers almost specifically to today, uh, 2023 and going forward. Because I believe there is a famine in the land. And uh, in one respect, you say, well, how could that be? I know uh, on the cable TV, there's probably... Conservative estimate, maybe a dozen to 15 to 20 Christian or uh, spiritual networks or whatever you want to call them. I mean, 24-7 broadcasting supposedly religious material. Okay, that's the better way, better term, religious. Now, and, and of course, that's it. I see the brother shaking his head here. Yeah. Most of that stuff on TV is, there's a famine for hearing the word because those shows, those programs are not using this Bible. No. And they're not getting the word. So even though things are going out 24 7, 365, there is a famine in the land. So part of it could be that, but the other thing is, it doesn't say it's uh, the famine is uh, of hearing the words of the Lord. You would probably recall if you've read your Bible much that uh, it says uh, several times in the New Testament, I think Christ said it over and over again, they that have ears to hear, let them hear. You know, you can uh, you can audibly have uh, some sound waves vibrate your eardrums, and, and physiologically you have heard something. But what he's talking about is actually receiving that stuff into your heart, hearing it. And you'll know you've heard it if you kind of 
allow it to affect your actions. Let me put it that way. The Bible says the heart's deceitful of all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So listen, I mean, your actions have a lot to do with uh, really uh, what you believe. And if, you're, if you really do hear something, hearing the truth, especially the words of God. So what I want to talk about tonight especially is that um, you and I have a powerful book in our hands. And I want to talk about not just how important it is, how about how every letter and every word is important. So we'll go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's writing to this church and he says, uh, For that cause also we cease not to pray for you, or uh, to pray for you, to pray to God without ceasing. Oh. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, or when you heard the word of God which you received of us, you heard it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe it. Now this is, I hope you don't think this is a fanatical statement. I believe the words of God are, are so exceptionally powerful that even if you don't believe them, they can work in you. They can work oh, yeah. on you, and they can work through you. Amen. But they more effectually work in you if you actually believe them to be what I believe them to be, the very words of God, the very perfect, the very pure, preserved, inspired words of God, the actual words he wants us to have. And I, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost like, think of these, think of you, if you've got a computer or cell phone, maybe you've got a password to get you into that. If you had a really special... Uh, uh, position, maybe a government position, and you need super, super security, you come up with an amazing password that would allow you to get in there, right? That's right. And that's what I like these words to. Every letter is all important, because in order to get into them, I mean, that's the password. They, every one of those verses contains a password, so to speak. A password into our hearts and minds and emotions and all these different things. I'm telling you, these words... We have no idea what they're doing sometimes. We know that they'll clean us up and they'll soften our hearts. They'll educate us. They'll, uh, God will speak to us through those words and all these things we know. But I believe they're doing all kinds of other things we don't even know about. Yeah. That's how incredibly powerful they are. If you actually believe what they are, in fact, like the Church of Thessalonica did, those words will effectually work in those that believe them. I go to Psalm 12. Verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver, tried in a uh, furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. What's he going to preserve forever, according to that promise? His very words. Do you know, as far as I know, I mean, there may be one version of the Bible, I think it's the New King James, that doesn't change that verse. That verse specifically, there's no doubt about it, that, you know, even the whole particular psalm, that, those verses there, not just 6 and 7, are talking about the words of God. And listen, 
these other versions change that verse because they've changed so many other words in the Bible. I mean, that's all I needed is that one verse to tell me that I've got a perfect Bible. It's no, no accident that the devil uh, led others to change those words. Uh, in Psalm 119, you may be familiar with that psalm. You don't have to turn there. But that psalm, it's the longest psalm. It's the longest, uh, Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in our entire Bible, 176 verses, I think. And the words, uh, the words of God, or different names for the words of God, like statutes, testimonies, commandments, are used more than 176 times throughout that 176 verses. I think there's only three verses in that entire psalm that don't contain the words, statutes, or something. That is, God took the longest chapter in his Bible and wanted to emphasize the importance of his words by giving it that uh, content that he gave it. Uh, the word of God, it's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's amazingly powerful. Um, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I bet just about everybody in here already knows that the capital W, the Word of God, that's a specific reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his name. Just like you and I capitalize our names, the name there, the Word is capitalized because it's the name of God. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. Verse 14 in that same chapter should be on probably the same page. And the Word was made flesh. It's Jesus Christ, the capital W. Now, we know that Jesus Christ was perfect, don't we? <laughs> and supernatural and eternal and all these other things. Well, since his name is the Word, would you expect the same thing to be said about the small W, the words of God? Amen. They are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got a little list here, and it's not an exhaustive list. But you can say that the Bible itself says this about the capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. It says the same things about the small words, okay? Both the capital W and the small word, they both give life, L-I-F-E. They both give light. They both have authority. They both are eternal. They both uh, prophesy. They both were made perfect. Yeah, Jesus Christ uh, was sinless his whole life, but he was made perfect. Okay? Hope you don't need any further teaching on that. And both the small W and the capital W, they're both counterfeited. And that's the danger, and that's why there's a famine in the land, because these words of God have been counterfeited. So, there's a great verse, it's in 1 John, uh, I think it's 5 7. It's, it's yes. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father. The Word, capital W, and the Holy Ghost. Obviously, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Um, let's look at the small w, Word of God. And we'll say in the Gospel of John, go to John 12. John 12, 
verse 48. Christ speaking. It says in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him, the small w, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now how fair would it be? What kind of God would our God be if he tells us that he's going to judge us by these words and then he didn't give us those words that we're going to be judged by? That would be fair. Amen. And that's not an attribute of God. He's definitely fair. Uh, look in John 14. Verse 23. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. You love the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you should be keeping his words. Go to John chapter 6, backwards. John chapter 6. Look at verse 63. Christ speaking again. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing, the words, small w, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Those small w words are pretty important to God. Job, in the book of Job, this is what Job said. He said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Boy, I wish we could all say that. I wish we could all say that and it would be true. Oh boy. That yeah. we esteem his words above that necessary food. Yes. What about that unnecessary food? Go to Galatians chapter 3. So Jesus Christ the living word. But this Bible is telling us how important the small words as well are. Look in Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at one verse there. It's going to be verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In these shall all nations be blessed. Now right there, that verse is saying that the scripture, these words, Amen. preached to Abraham. But if you do the cross-reference, which you, I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6, and Genesis 18, verse 18. It's God... And it says it right in the verses before that I just quoted. It, it's God that is speaking to Abraham. God, the Lord, the Bible says, appeared to Abraham and said, you know, you're going to be blessed. And all nations will be blessed through you. So what I'm getting at, you compare those two verses, Galatians with those verses in Genesis. This is saying the scripture. The, the scripture, these words, the Holy Spirit is equating these small w words even God the Father. Amen. Amen. That, that's how important they are. That's how powerful they are. Turn to uh, Psalm. I'll go to, go to Philippians 2. And then we'll go back to Psalms. Psalm Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 
pick it up in verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus Christ, and given him, Jesus Christ, a name which is above every name, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Huh. That name of Jesus is pretty important, isn't it? Hey. Now, I don't know if you ever had a chance, uh, if any of you travel from time to time between Atlanta, Georgia, and Chattanooga, and that's Highway 75, you seen it? Yes. Oh, yes. There's a big billboard there on the highway, and it's a gigantic billboard. And I'm going to say, let's say that, that billboard might be at least 12 feet high, right? If it is, these letters are about eight feet high that say Jesus is Lord or Jesus Christ is the Lord. I think it just says Jesus is Lord. Huge letters. And you see that as you're driving down the highway. You can see it from quite a distance. And as you get closer and you're looking at the billboard, you'll see above here it's got part of that verse. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus is Lord. And then in small letters under there it says, even the Democrats. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Some guy is paying a fortune. He's been, that's been there at least a couple of years to my knowledge. But those words of God, man, they're, they're so powerful. They're so important. Go to uh, Psalm 138 now. God's telling us, hey, he's the capital W, the word of God. But don't dismiss or demean in any way the small W, the words of God. It's just the opposite. He exalts those words. Psalm 138. Verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. How about that? So as important as the name Jesus Christ is, in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this Bible, that small w, thy word, is above thy name. According to the Holy Spirit, writing through whoever wrote this particular psalm. It looks, according to my Bible, it's a psalm of David. I'll trust that. Go to Matthew 17. The Gospel of Matthew 17. It's the account of uh, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It says in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And what does that mean? Well, here it tells you. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. He was like glowing. Pretty scary, probably. Uh, and behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias uh, talking with him. And of course, that's Elijah. And then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for the eight, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, Beloved, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. I mean, I'm doing a poor imitation, but it must have been something. God the Father 
speaking out of the sky like that. I, I can't even imagine. And verse 6, and when his disciples heard it, they fell on their face, you better believe it, and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, hey, arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And that's exactly what they did. They were beaten to that. Turn to Second Peter. They didn't tell anybody until the Son of God had been risen from the dead. So we'll get Peter's account of that little story in one of his epistles, Second Peter, chapter 1. Raise your hand when you got it. All right. Let's see a few more hands come up before I start. Okay. Second Peter chapter one, right near the back of your Bible. Pick it up in verse sixteen. This is Peter writing. He was one of the three. Peter, James, and John were on that mount of transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ, where God the Father speaks. First Peter one sixteen. Because it is written, "Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if you I got the right verse. Excuse me, Second Peter. At least it didn't take me three verses to figure out. <laughs> Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For He, talking about Jesus Christ, He received. From God the Father, honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, talking about heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And then he says this in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherein to ye do well that ye take heed. Peter's saying, look at we spent three and a half years with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And we saw all the miracles, not to mention we were on that Mount of Transfiguration. And we heard God, the, we saw him transfigured. He started glowing. And man, then we heard God the Father speak from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And even though we saw all that, we have a more sure word of prophecy. These words. Because these words never change, and Peter's memory may have changed over the years, just like your memory and my memory will change. Your pastor just gave you a brief two to three minutes on prayer that's just incredibly powerful. And I would encourage you to write down your prayer requests, and then in your Bible, write down some of the answers to those prayer requests. So you don't forget how prayer Amen. does work. Amen. My wife, bless her soul, has got these waymarks we call them in her Bible that are just decades old, some of them, and some of them are weeks old. Answers to prayer. And then you know what else you need to do? Of course, you need to pray first, right? You need to ask. You need to get the prayer, the answer to the prayer. You need to record that. And then you also need to tell other people about it because we all need to encourage each other about the power of prayer because it works. Because he's there. Right? That's great. Man, I don't even know if I need the whole book. Those first few pages are awesome. <laughs> I bet it's great. So, uh, prayer. Ian Bounds, I know I've read a lot of his stuff. He's yeah. got a lot of good stuff to say about it. Amen. Um, so, where are we here? Turn to Proverbs chapter 22. 
more sure word of prophecy. And how sure would that word be if we were changing these words twice every year? Because since 1870, which is 100 and whatever, 53 years, there have been over 300 new Bibles come out. On an average, a new version every two years, twice a year. That's the, that's the love of money is the root of all evil. But how sure are those words when even the NIV is changing itself? It's flip-flopping on these verses they take out and then they put them back and on and on and on. It's ridiculous. Where did I say to go? Proverbs chapter 22. Boy, I hope you believe this verse. Proverbs chapter 22. Begin in verse 20. Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? I know I've used this verse before, maybe not this week, but um, great verse. And, and there's a great book called The Certainty of the Words of Truth, written by Kyle Stevens, a PBI graduate of 30 plus years ago. I don't know if he was there when you were in school or not. But this is an amazing book. Um, he, he's got almost 29 specific examples of how these English words in those instances are superior to what's in Greek and or Hebrew. Okay? I'm just saying. These words are amazing. Do you believe in that? Those verses are saying, uh, if you use these words as your counselors and as your accessibility to knowledge and realize how reliable and trustworthy and powerful they are, then what I want you to do is use these words when I send people across your path. And that's why it says in 1 Thessalonians, um, I think chapter 418, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And he's talking about that verse comes right after a couple verses on the rapture and how important that's going to be. Listen, these words are important. And I'm talking about every exact, precise letter is important. You know what Jesus Christ said in uh, Matthew 5? He says, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. Now, I don't go to the Hebrew and the Greek very often, but what's the jot and a tittle? Well, the jot, that's... It, Kind of called, it could be called the yod. I think that's the actual term. You know, when you, when you translate something from Hebrew or Greek into English, some like Elias and Elijah. That's why Elias is in one testament and Elijah in another, because one came from Hebrew and one came from Greek, and they're just trying to be honest with their translating. So call this a jot or a yod, whatever you want to call it. What it is, it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's simple. Said Christ is saying, hey, one jot or one tittle shall no one pass from the law. What is the tittle? Well, here's two letters. This is like our letter D. Uh, wait a second. Yeah, that's the letter D. That's like, a, 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 they call it a dollar in Hebrew. This is a resh. And I may have this backwards. But one's a dollar, one's a resh. The only difference between the two letters, I don't know if you can even see it. It's right up here. There's a little tittle there. It's a little part of this line that sticks out past that vertical line. So if you remove the tittle, all of a sudden, you have changed the letter from one to the other. 
And if you change the letter, you change the word. If you change the word, you change the meaning. Go to Revelation chapter 13. I remember late 90s, someone on the uh, 700 Club, I don't know if that was Jim Baker back in the day, had come on, did a little interview, and uh, talking about some chip that his company had invented. He said, I don't want any Christians to worry about this because this chip is going in the hand. Okay? And if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that your Bibles say that that mark of the beast is going to be on the hand. That guy obviously never opened up a King James Bible. Because <laughs> in Revelation 13, verse 16, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Change one letter. And every other version I've ever looked at, you go to that verse and it's on, not in. Now we don't, you know, we're not going to be here when that happens. I hope you know that. So I'm not that worried about it, but that's just an example. Mm -hmm. And man, how many thousands of words have they changed? I know in the first NIV they came out, I believe it was there were 64,000 less words than in the King James Bible. So that, all, that tells you at least 64,000 words have been removed. It doesn't even <coughs> begin to tell you how many have been changed. It's amazing. I just... You know, it would take a long study. It wouldn't take you long to figure it out. But I mean, I couldn't imagine if you went through an entire Bible. Anyway, um, okay, let's get back to the clay for a minute. Uh, by the way, another reason that's so important. I mean, Psalm twelve and six and seven, the words of the Lord are pure words. But it says in Second Corinthians thirteen one that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. You know what I'm getting from that? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Witnesses aren't necessarily a person seeing something and bearing witness to it. A witness can be a word itself. So when you have the words in the King James Bible, the judgment seat of Christ, twice they bear witness to one another. They bear witness to that doctrine. I don't know if another Bible has that those words in there twice. Let's change it to the judgment of God or the judgment seat of God. That's not a phrase in our King James Bible. Now, I want to get back to this clay. I want you to dig out into your Bibles two places. Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 18. Now, because not all of you have been here this week, I'm going to say this. Um, the Bible says that God is a potter and then he made man out of clay, and he used his hands to do it. That's uh, Isaiah 64, 6. Uh, but now, Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter. We are all the work of thy hand. It says in uh, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's the creation and, and or formation of the first man, Adam. He's made of the dust of the ground. That dust was clay. You know, if, you, uh, if you've got a house that's really dusty, most of that dust isn't clay. You know what it is? you have any idea what it is? Most of the dust you find in the house? Yeah. It's skin. That's correct. 
That's what I've heard. Something like a big percentage of it is. Well, that's, that's right. Of course, now if you live near the interstate, you got your windows open all the time, and there could be some dust from the highway and all that. But that dust that Adam was made out of clay, the name Adam means red brown earth. And there's a whole lot of us talking to pastor's uh, father here and uh, talking about red clay. And that's probably the color of clay, reddish brown clay that Adam was made out of. I believe so, that. Amen. We've got those verses. We know God's a potter. We know he made man out of clay. We know he used his hands to do it. Now, keep in mind, just about everything I make on a potter's wheel, except for that vase I finished with last night, is symmetrical. Okay? <laughs> and uh, it starts out symmetrical. That's the only way you can form it because this wheel is going around. It's like working on a wave. So keep in mind the human body is symmetrical, isn't it? I got a theory. It might be that God made man on a potter's wheel. Now, he could have. And this is just a theory. But listen, uh, Job said, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as the clay. Wilt thou bring me to dust again? Wow. I read that round about. I started thinking of that potter's wheel. Now, if you're in Psalm 139... Right in the middle of that psalm, we'll pick it up in verse 14. This is, uh, think about this as the creature talking to his creator. Think about this as Adam speaking to the Lord. And it says there in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's Adam talking to God about how he was formed in the lowest parts of the earth. And he used that word wrought. Did I tell you to turn to Jeremiah 18? Probably didn't. Jeremiah 18. When I compare what we just read in Psalm 139, the one, uh, yeah, that word, 139. I know the verses, I just don't know they're all the time. Psalm 130, okay, so it's Jeremiah 18. In Jeremiah 18, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, the prophet, and says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And then verse 3, interesting verse. Why do we have commas in the English language? You have commas in the English language because they want you to slow down a little as you get to that comma. You know, take a breath. So it says that Jeremiah is speaking in verse and he says, Behold, and he says, Then he went down to the potter's house, comma, and comma, behold, I don't know if there's another comma there or not. Yeah, yeah, he wrought a work on the wheels. What? He's Jeremiah is describing what he saw down there, a potter shaping something on a potter's wheel, and he's actually using the word wrought, the same word Adam used when God formed him in the Garden of Eden there, out of the dust of the ground. So I had a pottery shop over 30 years, earned my living making pottery for those 30 plus years. Uh, and you could actually say I'm still earning my living making pottery. I just don't sell it anymore. Uh, oftentimes I would be commissioned to make a caricature or sculpture of something or someone. And if it was a human form, I would always start with something like this. And I just thought, now I don't know how God might have done it on a potter's wheel. I would think you might have started with something like this. Just a figure. Now keep in mind this is just a hollow figure. Kind of a bottle shape. And if I took that hollow figure 
and took a little needle tool. Well, like I said, the human body, you can draw a line through it, and it's, it's like almost like Amen, that's across. correct. Just like this wheel, if you cut it, you know, these, each half of this is identical. So I'm going to take this thing here, and I'm going to try to figure out where his shoulder might have started. And I've cut the shoulder, forearm, the hand, go down like this, come around, get his elbow in there somewhere. And then I would take this arm, shoulder, and all that, pull that out, and go over to the other side. This is a very crude representation of, if God did it this way, this is very crude of what he might have done and how he did it. But the interesting thing, if he was to have started this way, and maybe a different shape would work better. I'm going to put this one on his head because woe is me. Look what's going on. <laughs> now think about that. This is a cylinder that had a bunch of air in it. Uh, if I would have, before I cut these slits in it, would allow me to stick my hands in here, if I would start pushing in his eye sockets, it's almost like the nose would pop out, especially if it was bigger, all right? Just take my word for it. Just think of that air in an underinflated balloon. But when I've opened up these sides like this and now I close them up to seal the form back up, it's almost like you've created a chest cavity, and if your thumbs are in the back, you're almost creating a spine back here. Wow. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Uh, and then, of course, he could have cut out a couple chunks of clay, some things he didn't need here. And then if you bring these together, this guy's got very big feet. <laughs> and hey, I know this is, uh, does this remind you of Mrs. Butterworth? Or maybe the Pillsbury Doughboy, something like that. I'm not saying that this is doctrine, but I took a figure like that, and I spent no more than 10 minutes on it. I'm serious, and this is what I ended up with. I just spent a little time sculpting. I mean, you can kind of see that's in 10 minutes, and that's me. Now, God could speak that thing into existence in a heartbeat, but the Bible says he took his hands and he formed man of the dust of the ground. I know at some point he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But I just think this is interesting to think about because the powerful of the words of God, uh, and, and I'll get back to this in a minute. But this is, what I've just shown you is, is far from being doctrine. It's really supposition, it's, it's speculation. But the words of God, part of their importance, and the fact that we, every precise letter and every word is important, just like I got this from exploring a combination of those witnesses, the word wrought, and combining a few other verses, they have hands of baby and fashion me together round about. I'm talking about five verses of scripture gave me this theory and something interesting to think about. He did it with clay with his hands. Why wouldn't he do that on a potter's wheel? <laughs> That's just something to think about. Amen. All right? But go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to be one of my top five things when I get to heaven to find out, by the way. Or not, show me how you did that. Oh, yeah. How about that? 
<laughs> oh, whoa, I'm kidding. <laughs> Second Timothy 3.16, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. But first on the list, that scripture is profitable for doctrine. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Doctrine is what separates this church, this Bible-believing church, from probably 100 other churches within 25 miles of here. Amen. That is what separates churches today. We live in Laodicea. And the problem with, you know, you go on and, hey, is Joel Osteen an easy guy to listen to? Yeah. Can he help you with, you know, maybe make you feel better about your situation? Probably. I don't know. But he's not giving you any doctrine. And believe it or not, I believe most of the people, they don't want it. They don't want the doctrine, so they're very comfortable if that's their pastor. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's, let's look at a little doctrine here. Again, we've covered this already, but I've got to make my points. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everything may, everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it could be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I've mentioned this before, I think he says in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This standing before God one day at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be terrifying. Yeah. It's going to be incredibly I mean, there's going to be a lot of anxiety in our bodies. I think I tried to uh, mention that uh, Monday night when we talked about the fire in our future. You know, if you're saved, you're going to be before one day at that judgment seat of Christ. Go back to Revelation chapter 3. We'll look at a few more verses than we did the other night here. Revelation chapter 3. Picking up in uh, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So that because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here's the solution. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. This is the description of the church age that we are living in right now. This last period of the church age called the Laodicean age. You live in this period of history through no fault of your own. You, however, do not have to be a Laodicean. <coughs> and unfortunately, that is what is, you are surrounded by. Look at verse 20. Christ speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's on the outside of the church. That tells you if he's in a born-again believer, he would be inside the church, inside of those people. While we're there, look in verse 11. 
It says, Behold, I come quickly, Christ speaking. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. That's a picture, that's a verse talking about how you could lose one of those things God would part of your earned inheritance and reward at the judgment seat of Christ. A crown. What I find interesting is that that's part of the message to the church of Philadelphia. That's a different period of church history. It's before the Laodicean age. The implication is that he couldn't say that to the Laodicean age because as a rule, most Laodicean Christians aren't going to be having any crowns. <laughs> They're not going to get that earned inheritance. They may be saved, but that's it. That's by implication. That's a generalization. Again, it doesn't have to be uh, true of you and I. So, just quickly. If you're not familiar with it. The judgment seat of Christ. At the end of the Laodicean age, that church age, the church is going to get raptured up. Right? Then there's going to be a great tribulation that takes place on planet Earth. It's going to be a terrible time to be here. That tribulation will end with the second advent when the Lord Jesus Christ back comes down to rule and reign for a 1,000 year millennial reign. At the end of that 1,000 year millennial reign, up in the air is going to be the great white throne judgment. That judgment will be for every human being that's ever been created except for those people that have gotten saved during the church age. The church age Christians have their own judgment and it's not for salvation. It's for their works. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we read about. This is doctrine. Amen. It's doctrine we need. Yes. But let me get back to this. I looked at the uses of the word rot in our King James Bible. Actually, that word rot, first of all, I'll show you how different they are. Here's that resh, rakam, and there's a yod. So this is the word used in Psalm 139.15. It's called rakam. Oh, and I don't know what those other letters are. I don't remember. <laughs> this is the word asa. That's the, the word used in Jeremiah 18.3 for rot. All right? So if you went to the original languages, as far as we know, these were the words used and they're not the same. But if in our King James Bible, they use the word rot. Now, not only do these words not look alike, they don't sound alike, and if you went to a Strong's Concordance, the particular edition I looked at, you could take this Hebrew word, rakam, and you could choose from five different meanings or different words that would be translated. You'd go to this one, there were 72 different choices you could make. <laughs> if you're creating your own English Bible. I went through the whole King James Bible. 77 times that word rot used in the Old Testament, 23 in the New Testament. Of those 77 usages in the Old Testament came from 14 different Hebrew words. In the New Testament, those 23 uses, six different Greek words. What did God do through the translators in 1604 to 1611, those seven-year period of time, he took a hundred uh, different verses made up of 20 different words in two languages and gave us this one-word rot. Why did he do that? I don't know. 
But if he hadn't done it, I would have got my little theory that I think is probably just a little more than a theory, you know, and that's just me. And by the way, I'm not the only one. Because if you're familiar with the Egyptian culture, they believed that their gods, their Egyptian gods, formed man on a potter's wheel. This is a enlargement from a paperback uh, brother, a pastor out in Montana sent me. And these are these gods' names. It's Kanum and Thoth. And it says, in creation tradition. This is part of the Egyptian tradition. This, this thing, this drawing or whatever it was, is probably uh, 3000 BC. Okay? And with the scripture, uh, the text that went along with this picture on the following other page, talked about how this particular God, you see this, by the way? This God is half man and half beast. This is a half man, half goat. This is half man, half ibis type of a bird. This particular God here is carving these notches in this particular pole, and that's supposed to indicate the length of the lifespan of this human being that's being created on the potter's wheel. That's part of their tradition. So somebody else besides me thinks that maybe a god made man on a potter's wheel. It's going to be interesting to see one day. Yeah. Anyway, I love it. If I, what's so interesting about our Bible is you can trust these words. And boy, if you start to trust them and believe them and receive them, like they did in Thessalonica, mm -hmm. if you receive these words of God as they are in truth, not the words of men, but as words of the living God, they will actually work in you, on you, and through you. And the reason I mention that, even if you don't believe them, that's a good reason to bring people to church. Because when they sit under the preaching and teaching of the word of God, those words can supernaturally soften and work in their hearts as well. And bring them to say, hopefully, be part of bringing them to a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how special those words of God are. Remember, it's going to be a famine in the land. It's a famine hearing the words of the Lord. Take advantage of their power and then use them. Those six questions in Job that we talked about, six of them had to do with speech. And those are the questions you're going to be asked at the Judgment Seat of Christ probably. What have you said? Who did you say it to? When did you do it? You, should, you want to have some answers, even if it's just a few times. Get out of your comfort zone. Allow the Lord Jesus Christ to do something through you during the days of your salvation. Heavenly Father, I'm sure we thank you for the time you've given us again this week, Lord. We haven't mentioned it.